So I, I lied. It is not bourbon. Uh, it is Irish whiskey, a uh, mm. single pot still to be precise. I just didn't want to mislead you on what I was drinking tonight during this episode. So other than coming from Ireland, what makes Irish whiskey distinct from other whiskeys? This um, Irish whiskey and a pot still um, is a type of distillation that um, uh, presumably involves a pot. Right, right. Uh, it's so it's, it's a little a little different way of um, distilling it, uh, and so a single pot still has a slightly unique flavor. Um, so this is one that I tasted while I was over in Ireland at the whiskey museum. It was given to me as a as a birthday gift. So this is a three swallow from Powers. Um, I feel a little cheated because when we were at the Irish Whiskey Museum, they told us that uh, the only whiskey that they export is Jameson and the rest they keep for themselves. But I've come to find out that at um, Total Wine, you can you can get the exclusive Irish ones as well, which on one hand is nice because I like them. On the other hand, you know, I felt a little lied to by the <laughs> whiskey sommelier or whatever you would call the person who took us through the tour. Well, maybe he meant at scale. She, but perhaps. Maybe she. Yeah. Um, I'm drinking hot water. Hot water? Yeah. Infused with anything or just straight hot water? Just straight. <laughs> straight hot water. No <laughs> no coffee beans or tea leaves or, or anything? No. Lemon? No. Nothing? Nothing. Uh, it's water, except it's hot. <laughs> well, that's good for you. Uh, however, yeah, the, only, your drink, the, only, the only ways I drink water are hot or carbonated. That's not true. I drink a lot of just plain water as well, but I, pr- I prefer hot water and then carbonated water and then plain water in that order, I think. Now, where does coffee and tea fit into that scheme? Well, those are different drinks. Um, oh. I think I prefer coffee to all, I think I prefer coffee to all of those. Um, I like tea just fine. I drink a lot of hot tea. Um, you know, coffee in the morning, tea in the afternoon. It's been my, always been my motto, but, um, haven't been drinking as much lately. I've weaned myself off of coffee. Yeah. Yeah. I stopped drinking in the morning. I drink tea fairly regularly, black tea, but I I don't, if I miss a day of black tea, I don't get a headache like I did with coffee. So it's been liberating in that sense. Yeah. You know, I drink, I drink coffee almost every morning, just kind of brew it regularly as part of a morning routine. I, on you know, on occasion, I'm not able to. Maybe I'm up early for uh, a road trip or just, you know, some disruption to my routine. And if I miss it for a couple of days, I don't notice myself feeling different in the morning. I'm not sluggish until I've had my coffee. You know, sometimes you have like an early morning, you know, the kiddo has a doctor's appointment or something. And so uh, you don't end up getting coffee. And I, I don't notice a difference, which kind of raises the question of why I so routinely drink coffee every single morning. And I think the answer is just, I like it. Sure. It's the routine. It's the comfort of the, yeah. the heat and you know, the, the flavor. Um, but yeah, I found that a, it's cliche, but a, a glass of cold water first thing actually does, does a, a good deal of good for me. If I can just drink a, a glass of cold water first thing while we're Maybe on the I'm topic, try. <laughs> while we're on the topic of things that we're ingesting, a few weeks ago, we talked about your 30 vegetable a week diet. How is, how is that it's going not, for you? It's not, veg, it's not vegetables. It's 30 plants a week. 30 plants. That's the, whole, right, that's the whole thing, right? 30 vegetables seems really heroic. 30 plants is pretty, uh, pretty routine. And yeah, I, I stopped keeping track like week to week because I started hitting 30. Well, once I hit it two weeks in a row um, – halfway through the week or less, you know, I just said, okay, that, that settles that. Um, it was, uh, at least the first week it was a, um, super fruit trail mix that put me over. It has dehydrated, um, dehydrated blueberries and cranberries and nuts and seeds, et cetera. And I, I started counting them up. I said, well, there's 30. (laughs) And so I, I presume that what you discovered is that you've been having 30 all along. So you've not experienced any drastic changes in terms of how you feel or health benefits because you, you've been at 30 probably for a long, long time. Yeah. Yep. I'm feeling as good and bad as I ever have. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. 
any other life updates we should know about before we dive into our topic for the for the day? Man, I don't, I don't know these people that well. I'm not, I'm not going to drop life updates, you know, <laughs> just like that. <laughs> Did you? How was w- your watched Ham- watched Hamilton for the first time a few weeks ago? Yeah, yeah, and you it's ambivalent. Fine. Yeah, I, I am ambivalent. Um, you know. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda has has the peculiar genius of writing a, I mean, an absolute genius musical and also with the foresight to write the main character that in such a way that even someone as as lacking in charisma as himself could play him. Wow. We're we're going to lose followers just for that. He is, <laughs> he is a darling, Lin-Manuel yeah. Miranda. I know he, he, uh, he's great on Sesame Street. <laughs> he's been on a couple times, but but my favorite is uh, as uh, real estate agent Freddie Flatman trying to sell Big Bird some new real estate uh, in a in his natural habitat. These birds don't belong in the city. Oh wow. wow! That seems out of character for Miranda. You would think that he would be advocating for. Well, he's playing a character. Well, sure. <laughs> I'm going to be seeing Hamilton live here probably not long after this episode airs. I'm I'm very excited. I hope you enjoy. (laughs) How was your... In the Heights, on the other hand, fantastic musical. I've only seen the movie adaptation. I haven't seen it live. Um, But every part except for the part with Lin-Manuel Miranda, very good. I was going to say... And he's not really in it much. I was going to say, what you probably like about it is the fact that he's not in it. (laughs) Thoughts on Moana? Oh, fantastic! Okay, okay. So you uh, you appreciate yeah, the songwriting? Top tier. You know, sure. Great songwriting. You just don't the the performance and the and the person. You're not not a big fan. Okay. I recognize yeah, well, the talent. I recognize the genius. It just when he's on screen, I just mm, cannot do it. I'm I'm curious because all I know of uh, Hamilton is him as Hamilton. So in my mind, his voice, which is very unique is Hamilton. So when I see it, it's, it's not going to be him playing Hamilton. You know, I've got to prepare my mind for someone else to, to be that. And maybe they'll be better, but I'm so used to it. It's that whole expectation. Thing. Right. That's part of his genius. <laughs> Sch- yes. Intentional scheming. I'm sure. <laughs> How is your, your Easter? I guess by the time this airs, it will be several weeks past, but as we record it yeah, was my, yesterday, my, it was in the past tense. It is now in the past tense. No, my Easter was fine. Um, didn't didn't do a whole lot. Uh, got an Easter basket for the kiddo. He enjoyed it. You know, how was your Easter? Exhausting. You're, uh, it was. You're a yeah. professional yeah. liturgent. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we had a uh, an Easter egg hunt on Saturday. Huge turnout, which was great. Uh, and then rehearsal for the sunrise service, which my kids were at the rehearsal, and then. Uh, we had the sunrise service, which they were also at, which was good. We started a new sunrise service and then we baptized six people at the regular service. So it was a great weekend, but it was very full. Uh, so today, which is Easter Monday, uh, the day we're recording, I ended up just crashing uh, more than I anticipated. It was good and I'm glad it's done. Do you find that a rehearsal takes away the magic a little bit for your, for your kids? Um, no, because they don't find the thing magical anyway. <laughs> you know, perhaps when they're a little bit older, they, they might. Um, but honestly, I'd, I'd prefer they see the whole behind the scenes from the beginning early on, uh, as opposed to becoming disillusioned sometime later on. You know, they, if they see Marty, the but it's not all spontaneous. Right, right. You know, this key change just came about by the lead of the spirit. <laughs> That's been a major topic of conversation on the Twitters this week, mm. uh, the emotional manipulation of music um, and right. the people who are sort of redrawing some of the, some of the battle lines in terms of like who is coming out for and against it in, in different ways. Um, yeah. I, I, I did my bit in the worship wars. I don't, I don't feel like re litigating any of those battles. <laughs> That's right. Maybe, maybe, Maybe we can have a special patron-only podcast where you can you know, break out the guitar again and, and relive some of those oh, glory no. days. <laughs> Perhaps after some powers. Yeah. 
No, we we were very much of the of the emotional manipulation school, and I think that we were fairly self conscious about it. I think were you okay? Uh, yeah. So you you you, so you I, knew and you were intentional about. Do you think in a dishonest way, or just in a way that that music is inherently emotional? Yeah, in the sense that you want to to do everything excellently, right? That that there's kind of a, a vocational calling that if you're going to do something, you should do it well. And part of doing a worship service well involved uh, kind of exuberant emotionalism and that that comes through in the music, but also in, um, I don't know, the stagecraft of it, right? The performance of it. And it was never, it never felt disingenuous at the I time that we were doing it. I think that might be the key is, is it, is it inauthentic, right? It, it, if the if the person doing it is genuinely feeling the things that they're expressing on stage and in a spirit of worship, that's different than you know somebody who is scheming and disingenuous, right? We're going to do this key change at this particular point because we know that it's going to elicit this. I don't particularly care, but I know that it's going to have this. I wonder if if that makes a difference. Yeah. Well, for us, it, or at least for myself, I, you know, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but for myself, I think it was all a lot of um, self, maybe even self-deception is the right word, but certainly, you know, whipping myself up into a particular emotional state, which again is not fundamentally unlike any other musical performance, right? right. Or a, a musical performance that involves the expression of passion. Right. Right. Which it seems like most like I've been to a lot of secular concerts that are emotional, right? I mean, it's, and powerful in that way. So yeah, I'm not entirely sure that it's, that it's an intentionally bad thing. Although I, I am cognizant of the fact that it can be, it can be, this was not planned. That's not clear. <laughs> this is just spontaneous conversation <laughs> that we are recording and, uh, since you're the one who does the editing, I have no idea how much of it is going to make it into uh, into post. I'll be surprised when I listen later. Yeah, wait until you find out that we recorded four intros and all four of them are being used for. <laughs> uh, well, at this point, maybe we should cue the music that is designed to elicit an emotional response and set the stage ah. for the very deep content that we are about to dive into. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Some commentators cast the renewed fury of the Christian far right in recent years as the final lashings out of an increasingly irrelevant fringe, while others see in this group a renewed and rising fascist tendency in American politics. In order to tease out these and other threads, we are investigating the Christian far right. This is All the Rage. So we're in the middle of a mini series looking at social justice in the Bible, the biblical basis for social justice, um, part of a larger project where we are um, refusing to surrender the Bible to the, the far right, to the conservatives and the fundamentalists who try to use the Bible um, in ways that are anti-social justice in ways that are illiberal. Um, we've been, spending some time looking at the Hebrew Bible uh, or the Old Testament scriptures and what they have to say about social justice. Uh, we started looking at the, the big picture with Abraham in Genesis and, and sort of uh, in, the, in the call to Abraham, uh, God's vision that Abraham's descendants would be a people characterized by justice, reflective of God's own character. Uh, we saw sort of the, the way in which the land and the resources were distributed equitably uh, to the nations, to the tribes of Israel, based on the principle that all of the earth belongs to God, that there's enough to go around, uh, sort of a principle of abundance. We spent some time in the last episode looking at the systemic protections for the vulnerable in the Mosaic Law, the Covenant Code, um, and, and other aspects of um, the Torah. Uh, protections like um, the Sabbath as a way to to give the vulnerable a day off, uh, gleaning and 
other uh, practices to make sure that the the poor had um, enough to survive. You know, we looked at things like Jubilee and the sabbatical year and the forgiveness of debts. And we saw that there were systemic protections built in for the poor and vulnerable into um, the fabric of the Mosaic law, that it was to be a, a society characterized by justice with particular concern for the poor and the marginalized and with protections that would keep uh, generational wealth and poverty from um, growing exponentially in, in either direction. Uh, anything from the recap you want to add to that before we, we dive into the, the next section? No, that seems uh, that, that's a good recap and uh, puts, us, puts us on stable footing to go further. Okay. Uh, so in, in this you episode, know, I keep, uh, yeah, you know, I, I, we have, we have brought up a couple of, you know, technical points, uh, kind of from a biblical studies perspective, the relationship of the Hebrew Masoretic text to the, uh, Greek Septuagint text, uh, in at least one place in this episode, I'll have a little bit more to say about that, but I, you know, we want to continue to pay attention to some of these, um, kind of textual uh, textual matters, manuscript uh, matters. Um, so we'll we'll be discussing, uh, you know, s- some of that as we go today. But you know, just want to make the point that some of some of these uh, technical issues are not, you know, should not be seen as distractions from the kind of broader point. Um, but you know, I th- I think it's I think it's both significant and interesting that there is uh, kind of multiple points of entry for this discussion that you can kind of take a canonical perspective or a more like historically reconstructed perspective. And while they both offer in some ways differing, in some ways unique insights, uh, they largely overlap in terms of, you know, the broad thesis of our project, right? Of sort of countering this claim that the the Christian right has that, you know, social justice is the antonym of biblical justice, you know, the other things that they kind of say. Um, So, you know, well, I I, I think we'll continue getting into that. And then as we move into the New Testament, um, presumably in our next episode, maybe not, but, you know, soonish, and get to talking about that, then that brings its own host of um, biblical studies, concerns, historical reconstruction, right? The, I, I think probably most people are familiar with the concept of like the historical Jesus versus the Jesus Jesus of faith and the way that that's been used in liberal theology. Um, and so, you know, just to, just to flag that element of the discussion and that that's a thing that I, a, a, an element that I think is going to continue on. Right. Yes. And it's, it's important and there's lots of good, interesting things, but I think I agree with what you said there that seeing social justice in the Hebrew scriptures is not contingent upon accepting some of the claims of higher criticism, um, which is what I think is so, so fascinating with this is that you, you don't have to accept the historical reconstructionism because ostensibly many of, of the, the most conservative commentators would not, right? They are going to approach it from a canonical perspective only. Um, and I, I think these things are, are good. Like, But like you said, you can approach it from different ways and you end up with the same conclusion that either canonically or historically reconstructionist, you end up with the fact that social justice remains an inescapable central theme of the Hebrew scriptures either way. Whether you look at the the Mosaic law being a a post hoc reconstruction after exile um, as a way to, you know, sort of create the foundation for what the prophets were already talking about. Or you look at it canonically and like we're going to do today and say that the prophets are calling God's people back to covenant, to faithfulness, to that original covenant. Either way, themes of justice are inescapably central and present to the arguments. which I think is important to say just because, you know, I, I wouldn't want somebody to listen to this and say, oh, well, the only reason they think that is because they've adopted this acceptance of right. higher, higher criticism, historical reconstructionism. And if you don't accept that, then social justice isn't there. I, I think what we're trying to do here is say that even if we accept their terms, 
social justice is still an inescapably central part of these texts and this tradition. Uh, so in this episode, we're going to look at um, what we're calling prophetic correction, looking at the, the prophetic literature in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, and so to sort of set the canonical stage for this, the way that the, the narrative progresses throughout the Hebrew scriptures is in in the mosaic literature in the in the Torah um, the covenant code we have sort of this loose confederacy of tribes that are all you know united under their allegiance to Yahweh under the leadership of Moses as that continues through the narrative Joshua becomes the leader he's not a king right he's um, he, he's not particularly a priest, but he's a leader similar to Moses. Um, but the idea is that God is still the sovereign of the nation of Israel and this loose confederacy of tribes. As the narrative progresses, um, depending on which aspect of the narrative you look at, the, the tribes ask for a king. They want to be like other nations. And so there's this transition from this loose confederacy of tribes to a united monarchy, first under the um, the reign of King Saul, and then under the reign of King David, uh, and then under the reign of David's son, Solomon. We've got sort of a united monarchy tracking through all of these three Um where Saul is sort of this transitional leader. He's the, he's the first king. He's not fantastic. Uh, even early on in Saul's ministry, we see sort of David being the one who's going to be the the I- ideal king. Um, David. He was quite tall, though. He was. He was head and shoulders above everybody else, if I remember the, right. the passage correctly. <laughs> right. um, you know, there's... Uh, to, to, to bring the Septuagint into this, um, one of the differences between the, the Masoretic text and the Septuagint text is in the Septuagint, it gives, uh, it gives Goliath's height in a different system oh. than in the Masoretic text. And again, that system, like th- these are not using standardized or imperial kind of measurements. And so you, you have to go, well, when they say a cubit or a hand span or a spear length or whatever, you know, these kind of, uh, informal measurements. Well, across the ancient Near East, those would vary from culture to culture too. Um, but by a common reckoning, there's a an an argument to be made, and you know, an, there's a a series of journal articles that were written back and forth forth in the. Um, I think they were presented at uh, Evangelical Theological Society and published in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society in the 90s. Um, but I find very persuasive the argument that if you look at the Septuagint, which might reflect an older tradition, right, that Goliath's height is about head and shoulders taller than a typical person, right? Oh. That, the, that the text is setting up Goliath to be – I mean he was tall – by the by the standards of the Philistines, just like Saul was tall by the standards of of the Israelites. And so everything about the narrative should predispose us to expect a confrontation between Saul and Goliath as essentially being a fair contest between champions. And the right. fact that Saul refuses that um, is a particular sign of his unfittingness to lead. And then David, uh, you know, takes up where where Saul lacks. Um, so, you know, our, our, you know, your NIV is not going to, to make it read that way, but there's, I think there's a case to be made that if you get back to the, you know, the text behind the modern text, uh, sort of, you know, do some back construction and, um, that the, the initial intent of the, the author of first, second Samuel, um, which is a very pro David book, right? There's this sense in uh, biblical studies. Uh, you don't you don't even have to get into kind of higher criticism. It just it seems that a lot of the books that are recounting the histories of the kings might have been written by like someone who is really pro David, right? There's this kind of sense that you get reading through them, right? Um, right. That that they had a particular, you know, and and uh, lo- lots of lots of possible reasons for that. But um, that's just something that something that. Uh, jumps to mind. Sure. 
especially the author of Chronicles, right? Who uh, it sort of eliminates even some of the the faux pas, the sins, the transgressions of David that are present in in Samuel and Kings, right? So yeah, certainly right. in that narrative, we've got pro David. Um, but yeah, so we have this transition from this loose confederacy of tribes to this united monarchy under Saul and David and Solomon. And then as the narrative goes, we have Solomon, who sort of does everything wrong, um, becomes the, the king that uh, God had, had warned about. Um, he, uh, he amasses great personal and national wealth, and he does so using forced labor. Um, he really sort of uh, he he forces people to work to build his own palace and then the palace you know the temple for God. Um, so after Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam comes to the throne, and there's this this story of the people of Israel coming to Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and saying, "We will serve you if you will lighten the the yoke." Of, of your father, Solomon, if you, if you won't work us so hard. Um, and then, so there's sort of this famous scene where Rehoboam goes to the older advisors who were, who were Solomon's advisors and says, you know, what am I supposed to do here? Um, and all of the older advisors say you should lighten up, you know, Solomon was hard. Uh, if you lighten up, you'll have the loyalty of your people. If you don't work them so hard, you'll have the loyalty of your people. And then he, he goes to his contemporary advisors, those who are younger um, and, you know, sort of this, this famous phrase where, you know, if you thought my dad was hard, just wait until you see what I'm capable of. Um, and that leads to the, the infamous division of the kingdom of Israel with the, the 10 Northern tribes becoming the, the kingdom of Israel in the North and the two, uh, Southern tribes becoming the kingdom of Judah in the South, um, with Rehoboam as the, the king of, of the south and Jeroboam as the king of the north. Um, and then going forward from that point, we have a, a, have a divided kingdom, um, which sets the stage for a, a lot of conflicts moving forward um, and, and becomes important when we understand the history of, of each particular kingdom and, and the, the prophets that are called in either direction. Do you want to comment on, on the dividing of the kingdom or anything there? Um, well, not, not so much on the dividing of the kingdom, but you know this this really sets the stage for the the political context and political backdrop of the construction of especially the earlier writings of the Hebrew Bible. Right? Um, you can kind of divide the the writings of the Hebrew Bible into two or three kind of chronological eras. This again is from a biblical studies perspective. Because, um, you know, you clearly have some material that pre-exists David in in various forms, right? Um, a lot of the narratives that make their way into the first half of Genesis are clearly like these ancient ancestral oral tales um, that, that uh, kind of get uh, passed down and, and adapted into one larger um, coherent perspective. Um, you know, you have some a lot of the wisdom literature right is clearly pre-exists exists david and gets brought in job is is probably a very ancient story um some some of the elements of the psalms some of the elements of proverbs right have literary antecedents that we know predate um david the davidic uh kingdom by by quite a bit right so there's this kind of early stage material but then you have a lot of material that comes in during either david or solomon or the time of the the split kingdoms and a lot of that is f focuses on the the lives of the people of israel and judah and often it's just tales of subsistence right just people just trying to get by trying to get enough to feed their families um and they're often at odds with the the priestly class with the uh the king or the, the you know who, whoever the royals are there's constant drama with you know kings who are faithful kings who are awful kings who marry foreigners and the foreigners are awful um 
And the prophets, and we're going to get into definitions of prophets in a bit, but the prophets, this is when the prophets aren't really figuring into it because they often are a voice of the people over against the, the kings, right? And then the, the third kind of batch of material that makes its way into the Hebrew Bible is after the exile, right? So 566, 567, um, the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, that's what the Book of Lamentations is about. Um, there, I mean, there's a, um, a, a conquering prior to that, too, um, with, with the Assyrian Empire kind of incorporates, um, kind of incorporates Israel fully and Judah somewhat. Um, but, you know, this post-exile material, especially the post the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the first temple, um, is kind of a third phase of um, production of biblical literature. Um, and all of that, it, it shapes what the text ends up becoming. So, you know, when people talk about, um, there are these kind of layers of editorial, um, editorial, uh, shaping of, of the Bible. It's not because there were like these four guys who were sitting in a room and then the one, one looked at it and then passed it to the second guy. And then the second guy said, I'm the priestly editor. I think it's, it's that there are these kind of distinct phases, but at every phase, this religious literature is meaningful. And I mean, not just meaningful, it's, it's life giving and life sustaining for the, the community to whom, uh, to whom or for for whom they have meaning um and so then you you can see some of those concerns um built into the text but so the the all that to say that th- this political context really does shape um some of the most um probably pure and unmixed or undiluted portions of the bible in terms of we're weak in the prophets, especially in the minor prophets, but in the prophets in general, we get so much material that is not adapted or careworn over time. But, you know, we're getting material that was um, written from a particular perspective and then maintained in that shape because it continued over generations to give voice to the specific concerns of subsequent generations. Right, right. Yes, uh, hugely important point because we we get into this the prophets and so we we have this divided kingdom and then we have these two kingdoms that continue as kingdoms often do, right? And as we get into this, it, in lots of situations, the, the prophetic literature we're, we're, we'll define prophets here in a moment, but the prophetic literature is speaking into conditions that are not necessarily in dire straits. We're going to talk about Amos and Isaiah, and in both cases, are we have prophets who are speaking in a a socio political environment that is generally peaceful, generally prosperous, um, and so we, we have these prophets and, and the role of the prophets within the Bible are, are these individuals, these men and women who are sort of uniquely chosen and called by God, who often come from the outside of the establishment um, to, to critique the establishment. So we have, you know, to use everybody's favorite big word from middle school, anti-disestablishmentarianism, <laughs> um, the, <laughs> these, these individuals. Uh, so for instance, we're, we're going to talk about Amos at, at sort of at length they Amos is presented as the shepherd you know he he shepherds and he he tends to fig trees in the southern kingdom of Judah and he's selected by God to deliver a message from God to the establishment of the kingdom of northern Israel to to the king and the priestly class to the elites who are ruling um and so it is fascinating in the sense that this literature that we have is not literature of the ruling class. It's literature that's been preserved, that's in critique of the ruling class, which, which is unique because uh, often, you know, we hear that it's, it's histories, it's, it's victors who write the histories, right? Um, so the fact that this particular literature is preserved as scripture throughout time is unique in that sense. But these, these prophets are the ones 
where God selects a particular individual, raises them up, uh, anoints them, calls them specifically to the very difficult task of uh, calling back to covenant faithfulness the nation of Israel, specifically those who are ruling, those who are leading. Uh, some of these prophets have books named after them, Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Obadiah. Other prophets, for example, um, don't necessarily have books named after them or are not considered to be the the author of those books. Samuel, for instance, is considered to be a prophet um, in the time preceding Saul and David, who, who speaks a message from God. Um, but then also, you know, you've got prophets like uh, Elijah and Elisha, um, sort of these outsiders whom whom God anoints and calls to pronounce messages of of judgment and repentance to the leading, the ruling class of Israel calls them to call the kings and um, uh, sort of through the kings, the nation back to account. Um, so this, this is what the prophet's role is. It, it's to call the people of Israel, God's people back to faithfulness to the covenant with the assumption that in some way, uh, the nation, especially the leaders of the nation, have departed from faithfulness to the covenant. Anything to add? That you will find that there are kind of incidental references throughout the Hebrew Bible to figures outside of this group that we're describing as prophets, right? Um Moses is described as a prophet and Abraham is described as a prophet, right? So right. these are, are figures back, you know, in previous episodes, we've talked about the, the literature that encompasses them. Um, and and I, I think that from, you know, a kind of critical historical perspective, what this, this shows is that the, the valence, the power, the rhetorical power that the term prophet took on in Israel, um, that it became important to designate all of these early kind of founding figures within the religion as in the line of prophetic tradition, right? right. The line of prophetic tradition is, is it takes on that much um, weight. And, you know, you mentioned the distinctiveness of this literature that really does speak from the perspective of the marginalized, the, the distinctiveness of that being um, retained and given such pride of place in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, it's all the more remarkable because the, you know, what you have is this sort of dynamic, this constant back and forth between the, the ruling class, which is the, the royal class and then the, the priestly apparatus that is attached to them, right? Especially right. once you centralize the temple and instead of having these kind right. of outlying temples, you just have the temple in Jerusalem, right? Um, and then you have a critical class of prophets who are um, sort of set against the, the excesses or the failures of that ruling class. Right. Um, and, you know, occasionally occasionally the, the the king they see the the rhetorical power of a you know sort of populist demagogue in the prophet and so they get their own prophets so they get people who res rep represent themselves as prophets right and so like right. jeremiah famously is going back and forth with uh with the prophets who are sort of on the side of the establishment right right and so it's it's really not that far off from like the kind of uh, popular politics that we see, you know, the insider class, the outsiders, the people who speak, you know, the ones who speak for the people, the cabal, the deep state, like, like we, the, the United States does not invent these kind that kind of ways of thinking about um, getting change done and politics, right? You see right. it all in, in ancient Israel. Um, and yet, you know, and so what you have is um, the prophets speak for the people, their oracles get recorded, but the oracles get recorded and, kept and passed down by their opponents in the royal class and the priestly class. And as far as we can tell, typically very faithfully, right? right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, I guess suggests, well, maybe it suggests the providence of God, um, but also suggests just how important the role of prophet and, and the, how, influential 
the prophets were in kind of marshalling popular support. Right. 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 They, they were really, really necessary. Otherwise, they could have been dispensed with, you know, is kind of my read on right. it. Either that, or, either that or it's just post-exilic vindication, right? So you have, have these these messages that are, uh, you know, recorded and people remember them. And then all of a sudden, you know, the people of God find themselves in exile and they're like, oh, shit. He was right. (laughs) (laughs) Isaiah wasn't kidding. (laughs) Maybe we should pay attention to this so it doesn't happen again. Um, (laughs) um, We we should talk a bit about the kind of popular understanding of prophets as predictors of the future. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think for a lot of people, that's the dominant category. But I want to say, before we get to that, I want to say one thing. Um, the, so the earliest and probably some of the earliest writing across the entire uh, Hebrew Bible that we have are Amos, uh, Hosea, and Micah. Like those are some very early, um, very early writings. And for that reason, the text of those is some of the hardest to make heads or tails of in tran- in translating it to English, but not even just translating it, but in terms of establishing, well, what what is the actual Hebrew text here, right? So in terms of like manuscripts that exist and early translations into other ancient languages, um, there is so much diversity in those. And so there are some portions of like Hosea chapter 10 that it's just, um, like, like there is not even consensus today among Hebrew scholars about like, what even is the underlying Hebrew text here? Right. Yeah. Like there is right. something very, cause he- Hebrew is a language that undergoes uh, massive development across, uh, across centuries. Um, and so you can look, and especially if you, if you know Hebrew, not just the like orthography, but even like the grammar, the grammatical forms, um, tendencies of various writers, you can look at Hebrew and say, oh, this is early. This is late, right? Like you can look at Shakespeare and say, oh, that was, that looks hundreds of years old compared to like, uh, you know, Barack Obama speech or whatever. Um, and so those, so those have some of the earliest, um, earliest passages. And in particular, there's a passage in Micah chapter two. Um, chapter two, verses five through 11 is a case that the text is, um, heavily, uh, corrupted through, um, it's just, it's, it's not well preserved into the time period where we have kind of standardized, reliable, um, Hebrew texts to work from. Um, but there's also a, a case to be made that I find very persuasive that not only was it is it sort of, you know, the victim of, of time and language change and, you know, uh, a, a time when manuscripts were not sort of centrally stored and, and preserved through a scribal tradition. Uh, but also there is uh, probably some censorship going on from mm. uh, the, the community that passed it on. Uh, there's a great essay in, in a collection that we'll link in the show notes by George Pixley that argues that his uh, second oracle, which is what's in uh, 2, 5 through 11, is um, actually calling for an armed peasant revolt against huh. the, the ruling class. Um, and the Septuagint comes very close to preserving this um, pretty exactly, right? Um, so if you read in the NRSV, you know, it's one of those sections where if you look at the footnotes, like there are multiple footnotes throughout that'll like it'll say you, and then you look at the footnote and said that could say us. <laughs> That's a very different, you know, like lots of um, uh, lots of those, he, you know, Hebrew unclear, Hebrew uncertain, right throughout it. Uh, but what the NRSV comes up with is, you know, starting in verse six, do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, is the Lord's patience exhausted? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to one who walks uprightly? But you rise up against my people as an enemy. You strip the robe from the peaceful, from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their pleasant houses. From their young children you take away my glory forever. Right? And it's... It's not clear what any of that actually is saying or who, who is you, who is we there, you know, the NRSV uses quotation marks for some of those parts, but not for other parts. Obviously yeah. 
Um, there's not quotation marks in the Hebrew, so you're, you're doing quite a bit of interpretation. Um, but following the Septuagint, uh, uh, Bixley translates this, do not preach, they preach, do not say such things, that shame will not be stopped. Should this be said, house of Jacob, is the spirit of Yahweh shortened? Are not these his works? Are my words not good for him who acts uprightly? Then starting in verse 8, of old, my people used to arise against the enemy. Today, you shall rip off tunics and garments, making the prisoners of war pass by safely. You shall cast out the rulers of my people from their houses of leisure. Because of their evil deeds, you shall expel them forever. Arise, go, for this is no time to rest. Because of the filth, you shall destroy, and the ruin shall be painful. If a man walking on air invents lies, quote, I shall preach of wine and drink, such will be the preacher of this people. So if he's right, if Bixley's right in his reconstruction of the text here, then Micah is even more radical than Amos and, and Isaiah. And I think we're going right. to talk about Amos and Isaiah. They had a lot of uh, criticism of the ruling class. But, right. Uh, there's a, a good case to be made uh, textually and linguistically that the kind of original version of Micah was actually actively calling for uh, armed peasant revolt against the rulers because of the decadence and corruption of the ruling class. Um, but you know, that's not things they teach you in Sunday school. That's right. That's right. Certainly not, you know, and, and we'll get into, get into this maybe at some point, but it's, it's, I guess at least important to note uh, on a cursory level that much of liberation theology finds its roots in this prophetic literature, in these prophets who are speaking out about these things. And so in the prophetic literature, um, we've got the, the 12 minor prophets and then the, the major prophets. Uh, there are two major themes uh, that are sort of crimson threads woven throughout. One is idolatry, the incorrect worship of God. Um, in, in various manifestations. And the second is injustice, the oppression of, of the poor, of the vulnerable, of the foreigner. Um, so as you mentioned, I, Amos is sort of famous for a couple of reasons, minor prophet being perhaps one of the earliest. Amos, um, as it's preserved for us in the text, it is a um, He's portrayed as a shepherd from the land of Tekoa in the southern kingdom of Judah as one who um, uh, harvests and prunes fig trees, a shepherd. He, he's just in, he's a farmer, right? He's a, he's a shepherd and a farmer from the southern kingdom of Judah. And God raises him up to go to the northern kingdom of Israel and to speak a message um, and in the the preserved text for us from Amos, um, part of the message delivers, I'm going to read from Amos chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Amos says this to the nor northern kingdom. He says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way. Father and son go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink wine bought with fines they imposed. And so Amos paints this picture of these people in the northern kingdom of Israel who are rich and who are wealthy and who have gotten that way by trampling on the poor and the vulnerable. Um, you know, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. In other words, the the, the peasant class, the, the poor are are simply means to an end for this elite ruling class. And it becomes so bad that that both father and son 
are paying for prostitutes and they're lying on the garments of uh, that they have taken in pledge from the poor. We talked about that in the last episode, right? How one of the, the protections that God set up in terms of lending was that if you were to lend somebody who was poor, you, you could theoretically take their garment as pledge, but you were supposed to give it back by nightfall so that they had something warm to sleep in. And here you have father and son taking these garments and using the money they're making off of exploiting the poor to, to hire, you know, temple prostitutes, setting aside the fact that the existence of temple prostitutes is, is contested in uh, (laughs) um, ancient Near Eastern studies. But, the picture that the prophet is painting here of these people who are just living so decadently, they're, they're drinking wine, they're getting drunk in the temple on wine they bought from fines that they have exerted from the poor. These people who have amassed this, this great wealth through exploitation. Um, and Amos says this is one of the reasons that they are going to experience judgment from God. And again, I want to reiterate here that when Amos is preaching this, the the nation of Israel is not experiencing uh, hardship. It's a time of relative peace. It's a time of prosperity nationally. Um, They have vanquished many of their enemies, right? Things are good in Israel. Um, So it's not as if they're looking for answers for why things are going badly. Amos is sent during a time when things are going pretty well and says, listen, if you don't turn things around, if you don't fix this, the, the fact that you are oppressing the most vulnerable among you, the fact that you are using the profits from exploitation to, to get drunk and, and forgive my vulgarity here to get drunk and get off um, from, <laughs> from these, these profits is going to lead to, to God's judgment. Um, we see injustice here as a major theme and warrant for the, the coming judgment that will happen if they don't repent from, from this injustice. All right, folks, we are going to break the episode here. Uh, stay tuned for the next episode where the second half of our discussion of the prophets and their radical stance towards social justice will continue. As always, thank you to our Patreon supporters, to everyone who listens and or watches on whatever platform Check the show notes for links to items we discussed and links to all of our social media accounts, the Discord, uh, the Patreon, and so on. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to All the Rage, a podcast investigating the Christian far right. All the Rage is recorded and produced by Thomas Horrocks and Nick Don Stanton Rourke. Find more, including Patreon and an open to the public Discord server at the links in the description. The intro-outro music is Dweller on the Threshold by Neolor, used under CCBY license. See you next time.